again. Turn with me, if you will, to your Bibles in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. And Lord willing, we will finish chapter 14 this morning. Let's ask the Lord to lead us as we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, we know that it is the Spirit of God that guides us into all truth and teaches us. We ask, Father, that there are any here this morning that are dead in their trespasses and sins that have not been born again in the spirit of God, that you will do what only you can do. Father, as we see the warning of scripture here laid out for us, we pray that it would not fall on deaf ears, but that you will give eyes to see and ears to hear. I ask that you would help me as I preach, that you would be glorified and honored Help us as we listen, we would obey, put, put your word to, to practice in obedience. We ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are in chapter 14. And uh, last, time we, last time we met on the book of Revelation, we looked at verses 6 through 13. The picture of the three angels, if you recall, just by way of a quick review, is a triple emphasized warning to the earth dweller. The earth dweller, you remember, is the one who is not heaven bound. It is a characterization that scripture makes regarding those who are in their unbelief, unrepentant. And so we saw with our, our look at the three angels there was a warning of judgment, verses 6 and 7. There was a guarantee of judgment, verse 8, for those scoffers who say that the judgment of the Lord will never come. The third angel introduces us to the result of that judgment, eternal judgment. And, and the comparable imagery, we started in chapter 14 with the redeemed, this was the answer to chapter 13. We spent a lot of time on the two beasts in chapter 13. Chapter 14 brings us to Mount Zion, and it shows the righteous saints of God victoriously reigning with Christ, and they're sealed with the mark of Christ. It delineates from the mark of the beast. Of course, the mark of Christ is the indwelling Holy Spirit. And you see the comparing and the contrast with the destiny of the saint versus the destiny of the earth dweller. The saints are seen worshiping God with a new song of redemption, while the earth dweller worships the beast and its image and receives the mark of its name. And by way of application, we talked about this, that the wicked will not escape the just wrath of God. Now, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is giving us a full and complete picture of who he is in his character, that we may know, <clears throat> excuse me, that we may know the Lord Jesus in his fullness. And, and one of the pictures that, that the book of Revelation drives home for us is the picture of the judgment of Christ. We talked about that this morning in our Bible study. The wicked will not escape the just wrath of God. And this is one of the reasons we need not worry about vengeance and recompensing those who do evil against the church. Romans 12, 9, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We also concluded that our labor in Christ is not in vain. Nothing we do. As we serve the Lord, building his kingdom um, is, is a labor that is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding into the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And then we talked about the fact that for the believer, verse 13, death is not to be feared. One of the greatest fears that we wrestle with that is, that is uh, dealt with in the book of Revelation is our fear of death. Verse 13 says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead 
who die in the Lord from now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Death for the saint is a realization of the Sabbath rest that we have in Christ. In the picture in, in the start of chapter 14, with the saints worshiping uh, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb on the mount, is a picture of their eternal rest. The scripture calls them our first fruits, and we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. But for the believer, death is not to be feared. What about the unbeliever? So I read something this week that grabbed my attention <clears throat> because I have had the experience of two loved ones being with them as they left this world and two distinctly opposite experiences as I witnessed that. And J.C. Ryle in his pastoral way he says this regarding the sinner on his deathbed he said ask the dying sinner stand by his bedside and inquire of him whether it proves a comfortable and supporting thought that he has cared more for the world than for his soul perhaps you never saw the deathbed of one who got his feet upon the rock oh it is a fearful instructive soul moving sight when the heart begins to beat faintly and the eyes grow dim, when friends are weeping all around and human medicines avail no longer, when all intoxication of worldly pleasure or business is past and far away, when each lies in his own silent chamber with nothing apparently between himself and God, when something whispers, you shall not come down from the bed on which you have gone up, but surely you will die. In that solemn hour, beloved, we have little idea how small appears this earth and how broad eternity, how much the memory of sin improves and how deeply a guilty conscience darkens. You would then hear him acknowledge that his life had been a grand mistake. You would hear him confess that the care of the soul was indeed the one thing needful and bitterly repent the time he had lost, the op opportunities he had neglected, and the instruction he had despised. God grant I may be spared the pain of seeing any of you in such a plight. You think about that day that every one of us will face, unless the Lord returns. What will that day be like for us? As I said, there were two occasions I witnessed this. One was the passing of my mom, who had her body riddled with cancer. And she died with joy, singing. Um, there was no doubt about her assurance as she was ushered into the presence of the Lord that day. And another... Um, family member who had all the profession that the Christian life could offer, but fruit just didn't seem to be there. And as I watched him depart this earth, he was shaking his head, crying out, no, no, no. I'll never forget that. And I, I compare and contrast those two occasions of, of people leaving this world and what a difference it was. When we stand before God, and, and listen, the warning of God's word is not popular. Our culture does not appreciate it. You will be labeled as unloving, intolerant, but warn we must. If we truly love people, we truly care about them, then we have to tell them the truth, regardless of how it is taken. So this morning, there's three points that I want to consider as we consider the Lord of the harvest and the harvest reaped. I want to warn you at the onset, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture, so I hope you're taking notes. I strongly encourage you to take notes so that you can study this on your own. I, I want you to realize something. God's word does not settle in and shape and form your life until you make it your own. I want to encourage, especially our young people. Um, I started studying the scripture in earnest when I was about 15 years old. Um, and you guys know, for those of you that met my dad before the Lord took him, um, I had a great teacher. 
And he taught me to study. I, I, I shared a, a shot of his Bible. I came across his Bible doing some cleaning and organizing yesterday. Bible falls open to Ephesians 1, and it's just riddled with notes, underlining, arrows. What's the Greek for this? And, and he taught me to study and to love studying. But as much as we have good teachers, as much as our parents are concerned about our spiritual condition, until you pick up the word yourself and study it for yourself and make it yours, you're not going to get by on mom and dad. When the pressure of the world comes and it will come, how are you going to stand up? You must know what you believe and why. And you're not going to get to that point until you study it to yourself. So I encourage you, write down these references, study them yourself, know what you believe and why you believe it. All right. Point number one this morning, the Lord of the harvest. Look at verse 14. And I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is, as we've talked about many, many times, the revelation of Jesus Christ is a book of pictures, symbolism, type, if you will, to point us to truth. And this is imagery that I think most of us can relate to. I grew up in, in rural PA. My first job ever, as you guys know, was uh, working for a farmer at 12 years old. And one of the things that, that happened at this time, well, not quite this time, it would have been a little earlier, but harvest time. Remember many, many days where I helped bale hay, harvest corn for feeding the cows for the winter. It was always interesting to me because as you watch things grow throughout the spring and summer, once harvest comes, the landscape completely changes. But there's something else that's, that's pretty interesting, too, is when you're around farmers at harvest time, there is a sense of urgency. And, and this farmer, strongest human being I have ever been around, um, one time his tractor went flat and he held the front of the tractor up while his son changed the tire and this was no little tractor immensely powerful man he would also he he would bring a sense of urgency around harvest time because he had to get it in the barn you would hear him say i got to get it in the barn why well winter's coming the the picture of what we're going to look at verses 14 through 20 are the pictures of harvest those who were hearing this would have related to this very easily Harvest time was a community event for a lot of people. You think about the story of Ruth and Boaz. What was that picture? Well, everybody pitched in. Why? Because winter's coming. In, in rural North Carolina, when harvest time comes for cotton, you see it on the, the side of the road until it gets dingy. But you can always tell when harvest time comes. This, this picture, and we're going to see two different aspects of harvest in this passage this morning as we consider it. But it's imagery that, that the Lord Jesus used frequently to relate truth. The Lord of the harvest, like, like the bulk of Revelation imagery, it comes from the Old Testament. And the seven churches would have been very familiar with these passages referenced as, as John speaks here and writes, as this revelation is given to him, this passage that we're looking at comes from Joel chapter 3. And in Joel 3, 13 through 16, it says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. And in the valley of decision, the sun, the moon are dark and the stars withdraw their, their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. The first question that comes to mind as we look at this passage is, who is pictured here seated on the cloud? And it's interesting how... Our passages overlap, but thinking about Revelation chapter one, and there's a lot of debate amongst commentators as to whether this is addressing 
the person of the Lord Jesus or an angel under the authority of Christ. Um, I believe this is a very clear reference to the Lord Jesus and a picture of his return at his second coming. And I look back to Revelation 1. It's been a while since we've been there. But as the Lord Jesus is being described, notice what he says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. And made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, listen to this, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I think this is a very clear picture of the Lord Jesus that we're seeing here, seated on the clouds. Um, I want to highlight something that jumped off the page as I studied, and, and we're a long ways away from Revelation 20, um, talking about the millennial reign and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, a present tense that jumps off the pages as we study this this morning, and you'll see it. The word kingdom comes up frequently in our in our passages this morning. And I want you to, 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 to take away from this a sense of the nearness, the nowness of the kingdom, if you will. We'll get to Revelation 20 in due time, but take note of that. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says, remember that Daniel... Remember that Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 is contrasting the four beasts that rise out of the sea, these earthly kings and kingdoms, frightening and powerful, but each one of them temporal. All these kingdoms will fail. They'll all fall. And they'll fall to something far greater, and that is the kingdom of God. He goes on to say in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Listen, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Who is this talking about? Care to guess? The Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of who? The son of man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. This mirrors exactly what Jesus says to John in Revelation 1. And they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So what does the bodily return of the Lord Jesus look like? Well, for the unbeliever, it says in Revelation 1, those that pierced him will mourn. I don't know what to tell you on that one. I know that, that in Acts chapter 1, as they watch the Lord Jesus descend, verse 9, they had come together and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of it to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The second coming of the Lord Jesus will be fully physical and bodily in his return. But the scripture tells us, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
This goes back to our death conversation. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left under the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Notice what is in the hand of the Lord Jesus and on the head of the Lord Jesus in this picture, this perspective that we get from Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. I looked and behold, a white cloud seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. The golden crown, that's a picture of the sovereign kingship of the Lord Jesus. We talked about that this morning. The picture being conveyed in the truth that we're to grasp here is that Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, fully God, fully man, is the Lord of the harvest. We talked about the fact that judgment was committed into his hands as we studied our Bible study this morning in, in the 1689, the last statement of chapter 8, verse 3. He did not take this office upon himself, but was called to it by his father, who put all power and judgment in his hand and commanded him to carry them out. You look at John chapter 5, and it speaks to that. Father has committed all judgment into the hand of the Son. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus is sovereignly responsible for the harvest of men. What's pictured here in the picture of the harvest is the harvest of humanity. He is in charge of the, of the harvest, the separation of the sheep from the goats. How do we know this? Well, we don't have to speculate. Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, there's the kingship of the Lord Jesus. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And what will he do? It says he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And notice what it says. Then the king will say, to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit what the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, <clears throat> and you come to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did you see a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did you see, did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. <clears throat> Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, apart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Here is a picture of the Lord Jesus as king, executing the judgment given to him from the Father. What is he doing? He is separating the sheep from the goats. I saw a video of a New Zealand sheepdog the other day. Literally herding sheep. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. But as it as this dog was herding sheep, 
there were some that got scattered along the fence line and he was pretty meticulous to go back and, and get them and round them up. But you think about the work of the shepherd and how easy it would be for one to get left behind or left out. I think the natural question that comes up is when the Lord Jesus comes to harvest this earth, is there room for error? Could there be a mistake in the harvest? So we see the separate the separation of the sheep from the goats. He is the Lord of the harvest. We talked about the fact that he is eminently qualified to be the judge of this earth. How do I know, though, that there won't be a mistake? Well, the first question that we need to ask ourselves, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Some of the most frightening words in all of Scripture are in Matthew chapter 7. And I've often seen um, the passage that I just read you used as a presentation for the social gospel. What Jesus is saying is sheep will do sheep things. When a child of God is converted, they will obey. They will do all of the things that Jesus lists in Matthew chapter 25, meaning that they will love the brethren. If you love me, you'll love the brethren. In Matthew chapter 7, we find an interesting statement in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will what? Enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, what day is he talking about? The, the last day, the day of the harvest, the day of separation. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That, that statement that he makes ought to get our attention. There are lots of people that are doing the right thing from the outside looking in. But he makes a very interesting statement. I never knew you. But guess what? He knows his sheep. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give to them eternal life. Listen to this. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you're concerned about that day of separation, <clears throat> excuse me, know this. No one will snatch them out. That is the sheep out of his hand. My father who has given them to me, that is the sheep, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus says in John chapter 6, another passage to write down. In John chapter 6 and, and uh, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I, listen to this, I will raise him up at the last day. He is the Lord of the harvest. He will not lose one of his. It is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Think of those words. I will raise him up at the last day. There will not be one single sheep lost. He's the Lord of the harvest. There is a time to read. Point number two, look at verse 15. Another angel comes out of the temple. The picture here is that the judgment of God executed through the Son is sent straight from the throne room. We studied Revelation chapter 4, the picture of the throne room. 
This is showing us that this judgment straight from, from the Father. Calls with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. I said a few minutes ago when we started, there are two distinct pictures of the harvest shown here. First of all, we have the harvest of grain or wheat. And then we'll see in our last point, the harvest of grapes. Well, what's the difference? And, and you notice that the word wheat is not shown here. So where do I get that? Well, if you look at the, the Greek in the original text, it says, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. The word ripe in the original Greek means dried up, parched. When when you harvest grapes, are they raisins? No. What is dried up and parched when you harvest it? Grain, wheat. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So why the, the two pictures here? Well, one is going to clearly show us the separation that we were just talking about. The other is going to talk about a picture of complete judgment. Um, for your reference, Matthew chapter 13, 1 through 23. I don't have time to look at it. But also Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. I do want to look at that. Verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Again, here's the reference to the kingdom. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, and do you want us to go and gather them? What is his response? No, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. So let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Who is doing the sorting? It's the Lord Jesus. We know that the picture here is, is that Satan <clears throat> intermingles with the body of Christ, those who are not true possessors, but professors. If you look down to verse 36 in Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus explains to his disciples the parable <clears throat> Verse 36 of Matthew 13, he left the crowds, went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. There it is again. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. What will they do? They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. In Matthew chapter 3, we find John the Baptist speaking to the Lord Jesus or about the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 11 of Matthew 3, I... That is, John the Baptist baptized you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, 
but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Says he has a winnowing fork in his hand. It is the farmer's tool, if you will, to separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat, the, the seed, if you will, the fruit of the, the stalk is heavier than the chaff and the winnowing fork works it into the air. The wind blows the chaff away and you're left with the harvest. That's the picture of the Lord Jesus. He is the Lord of the harvest. And there is a time coming when he will harvest the earth. The first harvest that we see in this passage is a picture of that separation. The sifting and the sorting, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. The second harvest that we'll see coming up in just a minute is the judgment that's highlighted to the wicked. So when will this harvest happen? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? Don't we all want to know? When will this happen? And there have been dates, guests, books written. But what does scripture say? Well, there, there are a couple of things that we can draw from the text here. When the earth, to answer this question, when the earth is fully ripe, as determined by the Lord of the harvest. The text says, for the hour to reap has come for the earth or for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. What does that ripeness look, look like? Well, we read in Joel chapter three, the vats overflow for their evil is great. I, I want you to know that scripture does not teach a progressive improvement of humanity on this earth. At the coming of the judgment, the, the, the stamping of the grapes, the picture is the greatness of evil. Takes us right back to Genesis, doesn't it? The evil of humanity had become so great that the Lord judged it by flood. But Daniel chapter 8, 23 through 25 talks about the same thing. Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12 talks about the fact that evil people will, and I like the way that King James puts it as I'm reading the ESV, it says they will wax worse, worse and worse. Evil people will grow from bad to worse. Why? Well, we talk about total depravity all the time. We, we touched on it in Bible study. Total depravity is not the teaching that, that humanity is as bad as they could possibly be. But, but what happens when God removes his restraining grace from humanity? Do they get better? No. You see, as you read Romans 1, they did not like to retain God in their minds. What does he do? He gives them over. It's a picture of, of removing restraint. And when God removes restraint, it is a picture of judgment. And as we get closer and closer to the hour of the separation, the harvest, if you will, the scripture shows us a picture where humanity is waxing worse and worse. Don't be surprised. What would we do with that knowledge, though, if we knew when the Lord was coming? <clears throat> Lord Jesus said in Acts 1-7, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What would we do with that knowledge? Probably would. We would, we would monetize it somehow, would we not? Um, put it this way, would we be about the Father's business? Yeah. No. Eat, drink, and be merry. There's a reason the Lord doesn't trust us with that information. In John chapter 4, there's a picture of this. Jesus was, was very mission-focused, and so should we be. The disciples were urging him, saying, this is John chapter 4, verse 31, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples thinking he got food somewhere else, said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? What is he talking about there? I got plenty of time. Plenty of time. Don't need to worry about work today. Consider the ant, thou sluggard, scripture says. 
Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit, listen, for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here is the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What is Jesus talking about? He is right now building his kingdom right now. And you and I, as we're engaged in, in the preaching, the teaching, the sharing, the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, are engaged in building the kingdom as well. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogue, listen, proclaiming the gospel of what? The kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, listen, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You honestly think we would be worried about doing work if we knew when the Lord was coming? Jesus said in John 9, 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So one last passage this morning regarding the harvest and the kingdom. Look in Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Here again, notice the verbiage. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Verse 30, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like the grain of a mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and makes larger or becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Notice that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God in the present tense. It's growing now. Like the mustard seed, it will be seen in its full fullness in the future. But it is a present reality. The Lord is reigning right now. And he is growing his church. The Lord of the harvest is already gathering the wheat into the barn, we just read. In Revelation 14, 4, notice what we studied uh, a couple of weeks ago. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Listen to this. These have been redeemed from mankind as what? First fruits for God and the Lamb. What are the first fruits? first or the best part of the harvest what jesus is teaching us here is those saints who have gone on before us that are already in glory are the first fruits the final harvest is coming thirdly as we finish up this morning a time to judge look at verse 17 then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle and another angel came out from the altar the angel who has authority over the fire. What is the fire? We just looked at that. It's the methodology to burn and destroy the chaff. The angel has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. We notice the term altar is included 
in this picture. And as we've studied through the book of Revelation, the altar should jump into your mind and into your remembrance. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. What is under the altar? The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. The fact that the judgment is coming from the altar, what is that telling us? The Lord is carrying out recompense for the martyrdom, the abuse, the mistreatment of his bride. In Revelation 8, 3 through 5, the altar is connected to the fire of judgment. We see the angel in Revelation 8 take from the fire on the altar and throw it into the earth. It's a source of judgment that the scripture is giving us imagery here for. Revelation 16, verse 4, makes it very clear. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments, for they have shed, listen, they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. In Revelation 14, 10, we saw that the beast worshiper will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, we have a picture of the Lord Jesus that on his head, he's riding a white horse. He's called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. He is a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And if you look down at the end of verse 15 of Revelation 19, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. When was the last time you heard our culture talk about Jesus as judge? Oh, he's a great teacher. He's a great example. He's tied and connected to the preaching of a social gospel, which is no gospel at all. But you very seldom ever see Jesus portrayed as the righteous king and judge of all the world. The book of Revelation is opening up who Christ is. Do you not think that we as a church ought to be declaring Jesus for who he is? <clears throat> Our culture loves to, to approach the Bible as a buffet. And they walk up to it and they'll parse and take what they like. And we hear repeated ad nauseum, well, Jesus is love. Certainly he is. <coughs> but is he not holy? Is he not just? Is he not true? You mock him when you say he is merely one way to get to God instead of the way to get to the Father. He's very seldom spoken of as angry, treading the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. We don't hear that. We don't. Is the gospel message complete without that? I would argue no. What is there to be saved from? Well, for many, Jesus is just a self-help, a lifestyle improver. But the picture in the, in the scripture is that Jesus saves us from what? The wrath of the Father should get our attention. Verse 20, the winepress was treading, trodden outside the city. The blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. You see all kinds of mathematical measurements trying to figure, figure out how deep. This is hyperbole here to illustrate a very clear point. We talked about the flood and God's judgment. What The picture of the shedding of blood being so great that it is up to the horse's bridle is a picture of complete and total judgment. And we want to talk about how deep the blood is. We're, we're kind of missing the point. 
Notice that it says it is outside the city. Well, if you look at where the saints are, Revelation 14.1, they're on Mount Zion, standing with the Lamb. Revelation 11.2, you guys remember this from our study there not too long ago. Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Revelation 22, verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have right to the tree of life. What is the washing of robes he's talking about? Blessed are those who are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. For they have right to the tree of life so that they may, listen, enter the city by the gates. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But in Revelation 22, 15, it says, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood in our culture, much of modern Christendom, and its desire to be winsome, has ceased to be exclusionary with the gospel. What do I mean by that? We must invite sinners to repent and believe the gospel but not leave out the rest of the story. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, by the way, there is a resurgence in our culture in universalism, which is the teaching that essentially God is not a God who will execute judgment in his wrath against sin. Everyone will be saved eventually, and there are variations in this teaching as to how that takes place. It's not biblical, and it is a rejection of the clear truth of God's word. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 here all the time. LGBT Christians. Well, what does it say in 1 Corinthians 6, 9? Do you not know that the unrighteous, listen, will not inherit what? The kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice Paul's order here. As he's talking about the gospel, he's talking about the law, and then he brings grace into the equation. The church is so busy now trying to be appealing to the world that they want to give grace. Grace, grace, grace. We're saved by grace. It is life-changing. We love grace. But I didn't need grace until the law hit me in the face. There is no such thing as, as a Christian that identifies him or herself as an idolater Christian or an adultering Christian or a greedy Christian. When was the last time you heard anyone describe themselves that way? It's not to say that Christians are sinless. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to see the relationship that the, that the believer has with sin. Look at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. And such were some of you. That is a past tense relationship with sin. If you have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, you don't define yourself by your sin anymore. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Again, not talking about the fact that, that Christians are, are sinless. Not, that's not what I'm saying here. But we have lost the force of the message of God's word that says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? 
until that truth settles in to the unrepentant sinner, there is no need for grace. We talked about the woman at the well this morning. Jesus, when he's dealing with this woman, what does he do? The first thing he does is he deals with the sin. I know what you've done. And she knew what she had done. Her conscience was working on her big time. Until the sinner sees their great need and their guilt, what, what are they going to do with grace? They'll trample it. <laughs> Talk about casting our pearls before swine. I'm not saying we don't preach grace. There is no salvation apart from the grace of God. But my point is, is that when we leave out the warning of God's judgment, which scripture so clearly teaches, there is no reason for grace. You're good just the way you are. So what is our application this morning as we close? Well, Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He is sovereign over the separation of the sheep and the goats. Not one will be lost. That should encourage us as believers. If you're a believer, you are a sheep. And if you are a sheep, you will not be lost. He will raise his sheep up at the last day. But the question before us that we need to ask seriously is, am I a sheep? Well, how do we know? Sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. What does that mean? The heart of the sheep is to obey the shepherd, those he knows. The encouragement for us as we think about this great day of judgment in the context that we read in Joel chapter 3, verse 16, it says, the Lord is a refuge to his people. We don't need to fear that day. It'll be a, a terrible day for the unbelieving. But for the saint, Jesus is our refuge. Second application I would ask is, what are we doing with our lives? The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What are you doing with your life? How are you exercising the gifts that God has given you? What is his calling on your life? It's a serious question that we all need to deal with. Lastly, as we think about this great harvest and the Lord of the harvest, a reminder that evil men will wax worse and worse. But we need to be encouraged as we see evil increase. We'll soon be with the Lord. First, First Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I'm not talking about a pre-tribulation rapture here. It's not what I'm saying. Let it get as bad as it wants to get. I'm out of here. There, there is no easy button in scripture. An easy believism, you want to know what the fruit of easy believism is? And I mean this, no offense to those that believe in the secret rapture, but easy believism leads to e easy escapism. It's not in scripture. So shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. How do we edify and build each other up with, with, with these words? Well, the reality is, is that we will soon be with the Lord Jesus. Therefore, let's not be weary in our labor. Be edified, be encouraged. Jesus is Lord of the harvest. He will not lose any of his sheep. Let's pray as we come to the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, it was Spurgeon that said that the saints of God rest their head on the pillow of your sovereignty. And we rejoice in the fact that you are Lord of the harvest. There will not be one of your children lost. And you are gathering your bride. You're gathering your church. You are calling a people to yourself. Rescuing sinners away from their wrong worship of the beast as we studied.
in Revelation 13, and that day is coming soon. We ask, Lord, that we would not be wasting our time. I pray, Lord, that none of us, as we look back on our lives, if if we should make it to our deathbed, we'll need to look back with regret, knowing that we didn't do everything we ought to do. Lord, we know that if we do everything we should, we're at best unprofitable servants. But Lord, we we ask that you would give us a sense of urgency as winter is coming. Darkness is coming. We ask that you would help us to work while it's light. Pray that you would strengthen your people with your word this morning, that you would be glorified. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.